Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to another episode of No Script, No Problem on Believe, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? I am your host, Steve Berkowitz, and we've got a great show for you today. My guest is Academy Award nominated and Emmy winning documentary filmmaker Rory Kennedy. She has directed and produced more than 30 feature films, and she runs her company Moxie Films with her husband and partner, writer-producer Mark Bailey. Some of Rory's previous films include Last Days in Vietnam, Ethel for HBO, Ghosts of Abu Ghraib also for HBO, and most recently, Downfall, The Case Against Boeing, which is currently streaming on Netflix. That premiered earlier in 2022. That, of course, focuses on the two tragic Boeing 737 MAX crashes in 2018-2019. And that one is terrific. Today, we're going to be talking about Rory's film that premieres on Netflix Friday, December 16th. It is called The Volcano Rescue from Fakari. And this movie is a minute-by-minute account of tourists who are caught in a tragic volcanic eruption while just sightseeing on an island off New Zealand in 2019. That's right, it's called The Volcano Rescue from Fakari, all right, and it really celebrates the survivors as well as the everyday people who courageously came to the rescue of these folks who were trapped on this this little island, right, where the volcano was erupting, and it's got everything you want and really in an action movie it's kind of the way i felt um, when i was watching it you know it's got resilience of people trying to survive it's got the power of nature with this volcano and kind of the humanity that it takes to um, deal with this together as this group of people try to survive but it's also a tragedy you know i mean not everybody is able to survive i'm not giving it away but that's that's the story of it and um, there's some incredible executive producers, Brian Grazer and Ron Howard of Imagine, Leonardo DiCaprio, and then you have a score from Hans Zimmer. So you got great music to go along with it. So it is a terrific documentary, and I'm so glad to be able to talk to Rory Kennedy and hear how she made it. So here's the interview. Two documentaries in one year on Netflix. This one, a little bit different from Downfall, like an action movie. I mean, literally, that's what I felt like I was watching an action movie. You got tourists in New Zealand get caught in a volcano erupting on an island. They go for, you know, thinking it's going to be this wonderful trip and a volcano erupts and then they've got to get rescued. I mean, it literally, I felt I was on the edge of my seat. Let's just start with the basics. How did this project come to you? Why did you decide to do it? Well, I think you 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 capture the drama of the story well. It's also a very tragic story as many people died in this eruption. And there were also a lot of uh, very inspiring pieces to the story that, that hooked me. This was uh, a volcano, as you said, that erupted off of New Zealand. It was about 47 kilometers off the coast on a remote island. There were a number of tourists there at the time. And about half of the tourists survived. And the the film is really a minute by minute account of what happened. We ended up leaning into heavily um, on iPhone and footage from 
the the people who were there. But I think despite the the tragedy of the day, I what really inspired me to tell this story was the the stories of inspiration, stories of people who dug very deep in themselves to survive this event. I mean, really extraordinary. And then the folks who really arguably risked their lives to either turn back around or go straight into the island from shore on helicopters to save as many people as possible. Um, so I think it was really the combination of all of those things. You know, and I also think, honestly, this was not an event uh, that was the result of climate change. But when I think at this point, every day we open up the newspaper and read the news and there are these, you know, just extraordinary, awe-inspiring climate events that people are surviving or not surviving, right? And it's happening at an increasing rate due to climate change. And I think this also felt like an opportunity to help tell the story of what happens in the face of these events, in the face of mother nature, and you know how small we are as humans, but at the same time, how when we lean in towards each other, you know, there is the potential to survive and to get through it. I'm so glad you said that because I felt like there was a message of resilience and humanity. It was all about survival and caring for each other and doing whatever it took. But then the humanity of the folks who were there to rescue and overcoming odds, there's smoke everywhere. It was dangerous for them. Can you talk a little bit about when you're interviewing them and as you're telling the story, the humanity and the resilience that you saw? Yeah. Well, I have to say that I've been you know, now making documentaries for about 25 years or more. And these were some of the most harrowing, compelling intense interviews I've ever had the honor to do. I mean, you know, what these folks did in this moment of crisis, none of them expected to be there. None of them, you know, there, you really don't have any preparedness tools to deal with this level of intensity. And I just found their stories both incredibly harrowing, but again, I felt like, you know, the, the sort of unexpected ability to get through it for each of them and what they did. You know, one person we talked to had the wherewithal to jump in the water, you know, run to the ocean and jump in and hold his breath for two minutes underwater while everything went black above him. And, you know, he really, he describes this moment in the film where he was like, you know, it seemed like, I wasn't going to survive this and I was ready to give up because it just seemed like there was no options available for me. And then I thought, you know, I'm not going to quite give up right now. I'm going to just stick with this for a little while longer. And, you know, and it's that thing that people do in these situations that they don't expect in themselves. And yet he did it and he held his breath even longer than he ever expected he could. And then he got up there and it cleared for a moment and he was able to take a, a deep breath, you know, and another, another extraordinary man who we talked to, who was right at the crater's edge, very few people near the crater's edge survived. He was one of three survivors. I think there were about 22 people there. 
and he again, you know, and he was with his family who who didn't survive, and he had to witness that and go through that, and it's just completely unbearable. And he was ready to give up, and then he thought, you know what, I'm going to just stand up and walk one foot and then another, and then another, and he made his way to the shore and got saved, you know? And so it's just these moments of total humanity that you talk about that are so, I don't know, I mean, extraordinary to me, really, and inspiring to me. And it was really an honor and privilege for me to be able to tell their stories and to really show this level of human resiliency. The newlyweds, the newlyweds really got me. Yeah. You know, the, the husband felt guilty and just like, I love the way you shot them too, that at the beginning, you didn't really show the burns and then slowly, but surely you revealed. Um, but th- the love that they felt like you allowed them to show the vulnerability. Can you tell me a little bit about finding them first of all, and then kind of, did you have to get them to open up or were they willing to share their story right away? Yeah. So that's Lauren and Matt Yuri, and they're really just two of the most extraordinary people. And as you say, they were on their honeymoon, you know, and they, and as Lauren says in the film, you know, I'm not an adventure seeker. I like to lay on the beach. Like this was not what she was expecting or planned for, or um, could have imagined in her wildest dreams. And um And there's such a sweet moment between them where, you know, we tell their story, they, they remarkably, they sort of fall on top of each other and they are managed to, you know, survive that moment, be able to walk to the boat, get rescued, go to the hospital. They were, they were put into a a forced coma for a number of weeks and they were separated um, very heartbreaking for both of them, very challenging, but ultimately they were reunited um, back in Virginia where they live. And they have this beautiful moment in the film and in the interview where they're holding each other's hands. And then Lauren makes the point, she says, see, you can see where we were holding each other during the burn because that part of our skin isn't burned. And we have much more mobility where we were grasping onto each other, you know, and so it ultimately, I don't know, turned into a really kind of beautiful love story between them. And, you know, despite this harrowing experience they went through, they talk about how much closer they are together and how in love they are with each other. And, you know, are somehow so many of these folks are able to sort of focus on the positives of what came from this. Regarding the actual storytelling and filmmaking, you had some iPhone footage and some photos to work with, news footage, but in terms of actual like, you know, a camera crew or anything like that, you really didn't have a ton to work with. How did you start the process and then kind of go from there? Obviously you used some recree in there, but how did you start and, and, and how did the process work? Yeah. Really, at, from the get-go of this film, I was thinking about how do we tell this story visually as we are reaching out to folks who were there 
Um, and the story is 100% uh, told, you know, there's no narrator in the film. It's all people who were there on the front lines who experienced this firsthand, right? So there's no kind of historical or experts or that kind of perspective in the film. It's all, it's all firsthand accounts. So as we were, and that was my intention from the beginning, as we were reaching out to potential characters and interviewees, we would always ask them if they were, if they took any footage, if they were aware of any footage, if where we should try to find that footage. So it was really a, a highest priority for me in entering into this story. And then in addition to that, we were able to find some amount of archive footage that helped kind of tell the, the events as they unfolded and give some perspective you know, people, when the boats arrived, there was some camera crews and whatnot that we were able to use. And then we went, I went back there to kind of, you know, I went by boat and on helicopter to shoot the island and to um, help people really understand the texture of the place and integrated those into impressionistic recreations that were kind of grounded in the real, um, but very much affected so that you didn't think that this was real footage. I really didn't want to confuse the audience. I don't like as a viewer when I'm like, wait, is this real or is this pretend like where am I in this? Like I want, I want, I I kind of want the filmmaker to be super clear with me. So that's what I want to do with for my audience is say, okay, this is not exactly what happened, but it's sort of an impressionistic take on it, but it still helps ground you in what the experience may have been like, you know, broadly speaking. So that was sort of the take I pursued for, for this film. Did your experience working on projects like Downfall or Ghost of Abu Ghraib, Last Days of Vietnam, help you on this in terms of the types of interviews that you did and the types of the tragedies and the, the struggles? Did that help you? On this? Yeah, I mean, I think last days in Vietnam was was probably the most similar in our approach. Obviously, very different story, and that's you know much deeper archive uh, storytelling that we use. But in that, we decided in both films to only include and and really focus on the stories of people who were there. And I think it's both kind of have a ticking time bomb approach to the storytelling. And, you know, the hope is to really keep people engaged in it and to help people understand as, as much as you can without having experienced it firsthand, what it would have been like to be there. And that sense of both anticipation and then, you know, in the moment of, of what happens, of course, you know, you might recall, like in the immediate aftermath of the eruption, we we were able to get our hands on um, somebody's iPhone footage while they were running away. And you kind of, it, it turns from, you know, taking the iPhone that she's clearly got the iPhone in her hand and she's running and you kind of see the gravel and people yelling and screaming. And then she puts it in her pocket. And at that point, we keep the audio going and we, you know, we don't manipulate or change that in any way and turn it, turn the screen to black. 
because, you know, when I saw and heard that footage, I was like, oh my God, you know, this is incredible. And I really wanted to keep that experience that I had when I first watched it pure for the viewer, you know, and to not manipulate it with visuals that kind of took away from the power of that audio. One of the challenges I've had as a storyteller, you know, when I interview folks who are and getting them back into a dramatic moment, you know, a serious, you know, something that was exciting at the time. And now it's many years or months later is trying to get them back into that mindset. How did you try and get these folks back into, cause it's, you, you know, it's a couple of years later. Yeah. How did you do that? How did you try and get them back into that moment? I do a lot of research. So, you know, before I'm interviewing any particular person, I really want to know their entire story as much as we can know before going into the interview. So um, I think that the, the questions I have have a level of detail and depth to them that help spur the person who I'm talking to to recall details and moments in their journey. And so I think that that's helpful. I think also, you know, when I'm doing an interview, I take it very seriously and I feel like it's important to go on that journey with people. And so I try to approach it. I don't know if this translates, but I try to approach it with an open heart, you know, where I'm like with them. And, and I genuinely feel like I'm, when they're talking about it, that I'm like visually seeing it and experiencing it as closely as I can without having gone through it. And I think that translates. Like, I think people who I'm talking to know that I'm with them. And I think that makes a difference. At the end, there's a, there's a sort of contentiousness. You hear the, uh, um, some, obviously some feelings of anger about being able to go to a volcano, right? Is there a message in there for, I mean, as we know, going to dangerous or exciting kind of tourist destinations is a thing. Is there a greater message here for places? There's a volcano erupting right now in Hawaii. I've gone to Iceland, right? And gone on a glacier, which was not, you know, it was pretty scary. Is there a bigger message here? You know, I don't have a a, a um, secret message coming out of the film. I, I think that um, I really tried to be accurate to kind of the experience of the people who were there. And there was a range, you know, as you, as you um, observed, that there were some people who felt like they should never have been able to go there, that there had been, should have been many more warnings and red flags. And, you know, this is a dangerous situation. And then other people who feel like, you know, one of our characters say, I'm not going to, you know, live my life in a padded room and I, I'm going to go out and I, I love adventure. And, you know, we even Jesse who lost his, his parents and his sister there, he says he would go back. You know, so it's, I think it's, it's life, it's humans, it's arranged, it's, you know, we all have opinions and I'm not, I don't, I don't know which of those is right. 
honestly, I think they're all kind of right. And so I, I wanted to include all of them in it. You have quite the dream team in terms of your colleagues on this project. Among the executive producers, Brian Grazer and Ron Howard of Imagine, as well as Leonardo DiCaprio. And then your composer is the one and only Hans Zimmer. How did you assemble this uh, dream team? Well, so this project came to us. It was actually Leonardo's company, Appian, who first had read this article by Alex Perry in Outside Magazine. And they bought the rights to that article, which documented what happened on at this volcano. And I think we were all kind of surprised that we hadn't heard about this. And I think it was like in a heavy news cycle. And that was another reason why I wanted to tell this story, because I felt like you know, these people who went through this and had this experience deserve to be celebrated and like they, people need to know what they went through. So Appian then approached Imagine, Ron Howard's company, who we have a kind of loose partnership with and have made downfall with with Imagine and Ron Howard and Brian Grazier. So they kind of collectively came to us, my husband, Mark Bailey, and myself to see if we were interested. We read the article and got very excited about it. And then we, when we were editing the film, then our the schedule changed on us a bit. And we had to deliver the film a couple months earlier than expected. And our composer at the time was no longer available. And if you really want to know the details, I had played tennis that morning that I heard that the schedule had changed with Hans Zimmer's ex-wife. <laughs> oh, this, this is, I love this story. Yes, please. And continue. I had her cell phone number because she had played with his group of people. So I called her and I was like, do you, are you still in touch with your ex-husband? <laughs> do you, I, you know, never met him, but I kind of need, I'm in a situation. And I, anyway, so she gave me the cell phone. I called him. And like cold, totally cold called him. And he he picked up and he was like, well, my ex-wife said that you might call, but she just told me that like 30 seconds ago. And I was like, well, it's sort of time sensitive. And I told him about the project and, you know, he was like, well, I, you know, and I'm like, I'm not expecting you, but I just thought maybe you would help know somebody who could help us. And he was, um, he was like, well, I'm playing for the queen. I have COVID. I've got this, you know, feature film with so-and-so. I can't do anything, but let me see it. Right. So, but he was very nice and he didn't hang up on me. And so I sent him the film and he called me the next morning and he was like, I love this film. And this is like, this is a, this is drama at its core. This is, this is like a rumbling. We're going to like, this thing's going to erupt and we're going to tell the audience. And, we, and he had this whole vision for what the score needed to do, which it was like smack on. And so he signed on and brought another composer in, Steve, um, who was fantastic and Steve Lazaro and um, anyway it was and you know Hans was on all of our calls and was giving direction and really gave a lot of input and I just I mean I love the score to this film so we were very lucky to have him but that was probably a very long answer to a very short question. <laughs> That was an amazing answer. And you're, you know, you're glad that it's not a contentious breakup that they were, you know. Yeah, no, they're great. They're great. And um, 
you know, you, I like that Hans was able to fit you in along with the queen. Yeah. You know, yeah, exactly. When we talked at the beginning of the year, we I asked you about the state of documentaries and it was like, we were like, it's great. There's more documentaries than ever. And flash forward several months and CNN originals is like gone and you know, HBO Max is doing layoffs. Bob Iger replaces Bob Chapik. Um, how are you feeling now, Rory? Well, you, you know, things change, as we know. That's the only constant in life. Um, I think that I think that it's a pendulum, and you know, it, it goes back and forth and back and forth. I think that it, there has been a kind of a, a, a seismic shift on uh, in a lot of areas related to film and, and television and documentaries in general. I do think that there's still an enormous appetite for documentaries, you know, and I do think that the pen, you know, and I, I, I think the Bob Iger story is a um, an interesting one because you know, what he's coming back to say is we got to focus on content and we got to focus on making the best content available and possible and working with the creatives and prioritizing them and not looking at the stock price of our company and not, you know, laying off everybody who's actually talented and needed to get these projects done. So, I do think that it's always comes back to that. And, you know, these broadcasters and the streamers and, you know, they try to make the cuts and save money and do da, 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 But ultimately you got to invest in good product because otherwise people aren't going to watch it. And if they're not going to watch it, then your stock prices are really going to go down. So I think it always you know, they always return to that. Sometimes you need to have a new group and they have to learn that lesson. But I think that that is where the pendulum is going to start going pretty, pretty darn soon. And with Bob Iger, it's already going there. And I'm a huge fan of his. Yes, I'm glad as well. I think you're right that <laughs> as long as content is first, creative is first, then we're in a, a better place. Yeah. The one thing I did want to ask you, um, I and why... One thing I was excited about your film is that this is such story-based, it's character-based. Downfall speaks truth to power. Your story, this story, I had never heard it either. And it was telling this brave, you know, resilience and humanity, like we talked about. I feel I've noticed that there is this trend towards the Tinder swindlers, the God forbids serial killer docs, which are all great. They're very commercial and, you know, there's a, certainly an appetite for that. Is there a concern that we can get overloaded or oversaturated with those types and some projects that are very important stories might not get made or might not get the attention that they deserve? Right. Well, I think it's a very astute question and a very important one. Um, I do think that there has been an aversion of late to engage with overtly political films. And I think that that is problematic 
And I think that, um, you know, particularly in, in the documentary space, historically, I think documentaries have played a very important role in, um, in speaking truth to power and helping us understand issues that maybe we didn't quite grasp in their entirety. And I do think that it is really important for the streamers, the broadcasters, the funders, the distributors to get behind these films. I think, you know, like Downfall is a great example, actually. And, and it's not just because it's my film, but it did extraordinarily well on Netflix. You know, it, it was seen by by in the first week, Netflix estimated up to 54 million, the first 10 days, up to 54 million people watched the film in its entirety around the world. And it was number one in numerous countries. Um, it it did extraordinarily well. And it was a political film, you know, and it, it, it did take on a major corporation. So I think those films, there's other films out this year, like Navalny, you know, which is a very political film about Russia. And I just hope that these kinds of films continue to get the support. And and because I do think there's the demand for them and people eat them up and they want them. And I think it helps make the world go round. I agree. I definitely agree because I love those acts. Yeah. The Volcano, Rescue from Fakari. Did I get that right? Yeah. Okay. Premieres on Netflix, Friday, December 16th. Everybody needs to see it. Any final words, anything else you want to tell everybody about it, Rory? I think it's a it's a really great story and um, celebrates these extraordinary souls that deserve to be celebrated. All right. Well, thank you for coming on. I love seeing you. Okay. Take care. All right, there you have it. Make sure you catch The Volcano Rescue from Fakari on this Friday. That is December 16th on Netflix. Before we go, I want to recommend a few other things to watch. Louis Armstrong, Black and Blues. That is directed by my good friend Sasha Jenkins, and that is on Apple+. Plus. Great documentary. If you haven't seen part two of The Vow, on HBO. Terrific season. I think it's even better than the first season. Great storytelling. Really goes back and forth in the trial between prosecution and defense and the whole Nancy Saltzman inter, you know, storyline is really terrific and really does a great job of digging into who she is and gets into her mindset. And I just really, really enjoyed it. Personal note, if you uh, like the old Saturday morning shows or if you have kids who are up on Saturday morning, turn on NBC, give Harlem Globetrotters Play It Forward a chance. It's on NBC on Saturday mornings. I worked on it. Um, so it's not bad. It's the Globetrotters. They were hilarious and a lot of fun to work with. And so I, I did that for about four months. Um, lots of fun. And then I, I love the uh the new season of white lotus so definitely check that out that's going to do it for another episode of no script no problem for everybody listening please remember to subscribe download and rate the show 
It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can also find it at Believe.com and at Believe Network. Follow me on Twitter at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. I'm also on Post News, this new social media platform. Um, you can email me any questions you have. No script, no problem podcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Berkowitz for No Script, No Problem. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.